Hey, this is Simeon. Welcome back to my Master Your Universe podcast. I was recently at the Forks Washington Bigfoot Festival and Conference. Uh, There was a cancellation, and so the conference organizer said, Hey, Simeon, you want to come up and give us a presentation? They had just shown a screening of a soon-to-be-released film, A Flash of Beauty, the Paranormal Bigfoot. Uh, I did an interview with the creators and writers of that sequel to the original A Flash of Beauty movie, Bigfoot Revealed, uh, at Forks, Washington. They showed a screening of that movie, and I'm in the sequel. And so they thought it would be appropriate for me to get up and give a uh, lecture uh, to the audience there about some of the ideas I talk about in A Flash of Beauty, The Paranormal Bigfoot. And uh, so this is a talk. This is about an hour long. And I talk about how I got involved in all of these subjects, uh, including my UFO sighting as a teenager with my mom in the Everglades, uh, my study of fractal geometry in graduate school and how that led to an interest in remote viewing. And even nowadays, what's called cold fusion, low energy nuclear reaction and ball lightning, which has a fractal structure to it. So I think you'll find this talk interesting. Um, I didn't have time to talk about how this all connects to Bigfoot and cryptids, as I discuss in my recent book, uh, Dark Matter Monsters, um, Cryptids, Ball Lightning, and the Science of Secret Life Forms. Uh, but it's sort of like an introduction to that. So if you're interested in how, you know, how I, why I think the way they I do, and how I got involved in these subjects, I think you'll find this interesting. So without any further ado, uh, here's my lecture at Forks, Washington in uh, May of 2023. Bigfoot and cryptids. This is how Simeon puts it all together. You don't have to agree with what I'm about to say. You may have your own point of view. I'm not saying this is necessarily the only way to look at it, but this is how I look at it coming from about 25 years of experience uh, with this. Actually, it goes back a little longer. Can we have the next slide? Yes, we can. Yeah, so this is really where it starts for me. Uh, I, my mom was a bird watcher. We went down to the Everglades National Park when in the 1970s, like the early 1970s. We're out there looking at all the birds and the swamps there and so forth. And this, this huge object comes over that in my 11-year-old mind, I think is the moon. Because I couldn't figure out what else would be round and huge. So I say to mom, look at the moon. It's just really strange. And it's over, yeah, overhead. And she says, yeah, the moon's over there. So then I say, what's that? And this thing was, you know, full moon sized, right over us, level of the clouds. And uh, uh, when we looked at it with our binoculars, uh, there were solid dots that formed the Z, like dots. So it had like structure within it, but it also looked amorphous. My, my teenage mind at the time could not make sense of what we were looking at. My mom said, hey, it's a UFO. and. Uh, we went to the ranger talk that night, and uh, we the ranger said, did anybody, you know, as you've been to the national parks, did anyone see anything interesting today? So my mom raised her hand, said, we just saw a UFO. She was a quite an intrepid soul. 
And the ranger said, that's interesting. Did anyone else see anything else that they wanted to talk about? So then my, that was, and, and people we sat down next to, right in the front row, uh, there was a blackout all of a sudden. Uh, they had seen the object too. And so my mom didn't give up. We went up after the talk. My mom said, we really did, uh, you know, see a UFO and, and look, there's a blackout now. And the ranger said, well, these blackouts happen all the time and I, I don't have time for this. So anyway, that was my first experience seeing something anomalous and then having someone in a position of authority there to tell about it. And they basically said, you know, it was a weather balloon. So that was my first encounter with something really strange. And it did get me reading books as a teenager. I think the first book I read related to anything like this remotely was John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies, right? So that kind of sunk in at a young age. Um, but all of it really faded away as I went to college, then I went to graduate school, University of Arizona, and then good old WSU in Pullman, not too far away. Um, well, kind of far away, but the other side of the state. And then I went to, uh, I got, got a PhD, and all of this had faded away. And I never really had contact with it, but it turns out that I did, because what I studied at WSU uh, was something called fractal geometry. Can we go on to the next slide? Yeah, so fractals are objects that are self-similar. It's the way nature really looks. It's like the concept as above, so below. It's that things are the same at different scales, whether you look at the largest scale or the smallest scale, you're gonna see the same patterns. And this is just artwork sort of illustrating the idea of fractals. I'm sure you've all seen these and are familiar with it. At the time when I was studying this at WSU, I was looking at how to use it to study uh, complexity of information. But it turns out the definition of fractals, objects between dimensions. Because as it turns out, fractals don't really exist in our world the way they look. They're made of smaller and smaller and smaller parts. So the closer you look, the more detail you see. And they literally describe objects between dimensions like clouds and mountain ranges and the way rivers uh, meander and flow and break off into streams. And they describe your uh, cardiovascular system, you know, the way the lungs are, are uh, the bronchia, the temperate into smaller and smaller branches, or within your body, you know, larger blood vessels and smaller vessels to get to every part of your body. So it's like that phrase from hundreds of years ago, you know, bigger fleas have smaller fleas on their backs to bite them, and the smaller fleas have teensier fleas and so on infinite. That's fractals, next slide. And you know, there were computer generated fractals back then. Uh, you could make them on a computer. This is what it was in the early 90s. Now they're very sophisticated. But the point is fractals look like nature. Nature doesn't really work according to straight lines. We're the ones that impose order and regularity of shapes uh, from our Western tradition onto nature. It doesn't actually look like that. It looks more like this. Next slide. And fractals are used, you know, JPEG compression is an example of how they've been applied and so forth. Uh, how, you don't need to sample every little piece of data. You can just have an algorithm and you can sort of take one out of every pieces of 10 data points and you could kind of 
reproduce sort of what the object looks like on a fraction of the data, which you know is very useful in, in satellite communication and so forth, where there's a lot of data going back and forth. But the point is, uh, this actually has practical technological applications, and it's the way that nature designed us and the universe. Next. Okay. Yeah. And even. Fractals are not just objects in space, they're actually in time. The rhythms of the heart, the rhythms of sounds and of music follows these sort of fractal patterns. My next slide. So that you find this sort of self-similarity over time, long time periods, and you look at over a month, over a week, you see the same sort of wave pattern. That's also a fractal time pattern, which it means it never resolves to a line. All of our Western educational training teaches us to resolve things to a line. I know when I taught statistics at WSU and uh, U of A, there was always this idea, and I know this is gonna resonate with you, that you can throw out outliers that didn't fit your line. Well, maybe those outliers are what matter. But for a long time, our statistics, all the statistics we use, going back 100 years, is based on finding these normal patterns within data. And the way you get to that normalcy is by throwing away data, right? Outliers. Which uh, could get you in deep trouble if that outlier happens to be like COVID, when only 60 people have it. So it's an outlier. <laughs> <laughs> the only 60 people have it, right when it first started in this country. I think it started on this side. Well, maybe it started in New York City, who knows. But the point is, those outliers could actually be what really matters next. So, just one case to illustrate this to you very clearly. How, this is the coastline of England example from Men, uh, Benoit Mandelbrot, the guy that kind of discovered fractals uh, at working at IBM. He was studying signal noise in telephone lines. And he found that those fractal repeating patterns at any scale. So how long is the, the length of any coastline? Uh, it actually is not a fixed distance, believe it or not. It depends on the size of your ruler. The smaller the ruler, the more detail you will see. As your ruler gets smaller and smaller, it would go from just measuring a certain fixed distance, and now you're going between rocks, between sand grains. It turns out the distance of any coastline is infinite. It depends on the scale. So what this teaches us is what we're seeing in data is the assumptions that we're putting into the models to begin with. So it's the phrase, you know, you've heard ego, garbage in, garbage out. So the point is, the way the world looks depends on how you're looking at it. It actually can be different scales depending on the instruments you're using to measure it. It doesn't have a fixed objective definition exactly the way we saw. Uh, so it turns out coastlines are between one and two dimensions. I forgot the coastline of England is like 1.6. Clouds have like a dimension of 2.2 to 2.3. They're interdimensional objects. They're more than a flat surface, but they don't fill in, like clouds, for example, all of the space, so they're not three-dimensionally. That's why they're between dimensions, and that's why they're considered to be fractal objects. Next. We find this in music. It's called the 1 over F spectra, or flicker noise. Now, this is very interesting, because flicker noise is something that's related to avalanches. 
you know that if you've done any research or are familiar with avalanches, they don't just happen with a very strong noise or a signal or a sound wave. It could actually be a very weak wave that's just resonating, resonating with the frequency of, the, of all the snow that's built up. And a very weak signal can trigger an avalanche, not necessarily very loud noise. And the types of signals that are related to avalanches are fractal signals, and it's called in science flicker noise. Next. And you can see what this looks like. It's called pink noise. Uh, white noise is totally random. Sometimes we use that to go to sleep. If you have a white noise generator, you know what that sounds like. Brown noise is correlated. And this pink noise, and even if you read science articles about this now, it's sort of undefined. No one knows exactly what it is. It's between correlation and total randomness. It's a fractal signal. And you find this in some sorts of exotic physics properties. Next. So, my introduction to these subjects comes through remote viewing. After I graduated from WSU, because I had studied fractals, I was of the view that there may be phenomena out there that science hadn't identified, because they were looking at it the way I was taught as a statistics teacher to make everything linear. But once you knew about fractals and realized that linear, you know, linear Statistics was just sort of a very general approximation of reality that may not even fit it very well. I was looking for processes that could be more like fractals, like the shapes we were looking at, more the way nature designs things. And when I heard about remote viewing, I thought maybe this is it. Maybe this is something that's more like flicker noise and not those linear, dreaded linear lines that we're always trying to fit data sets to. Remote viewing, just a brief introduction, this is something that we're all capable of doing. Uh, somehow, our military found out about it in the uh, 1960s that the Soviets had lots of institutes, 22 institutes for remote viewing run under the KGB to try to weaponize human intuition, telepathy, precognition, all these sort of psychic phenomena that you're familiar with. It's all built into us, but the Soviets you know, had this penchant for weaponizing everything. And so our military said, well, if they have it, we have to have it too. So they started this program, and I ended up learning when it was declassified in 1995, this Ingo Swan CRV protocol, which had been developed at SRI in Palo Alto, California, Stanford Research Institute, as it was called at the time. And this was something that totally blew my mind. First of all, I didn't expect it to work, but it did. I took a course at the Farsight Institute um, and uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, I was really surprised that within two or three days, I was literally describing something that was in a folder behind my back that you wouldn't see. You had no clue what this was. You're just given some random numbers that were put on the folder. And these are just examples of what these sessions look like. You have these phases, you have these things called ideograms, and you have these sketches that you go through. And if the procedure works properly by the end of the session in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, maybe two hours, you've actually reproduced what's in the folder. Again, something being like, you know, a graduate school, PhD educated person, I wouldn't have thought was possible until I saw myself doing it and everyone else in the class, at least in that eight day class at Farsight. And so I've been involved with this ever since. Next slide. And this is typically what sessions look like. They're very messy, and then they should be messy because it's coming from the unconscious mind, and you don't want the conscious mind 
dictating what should show up there. It's just whatever the viewer is perceiving while they're doing the session. Next. So here's just an example. The target you know, is the Washington Monument, and the viewer gets the Washington Monument. In this particular session, the viewer said, it was so quick, they said, it can't be the Washington Monument. So they walked down the reflecting pool and described the Lincoln Memorial, uh, on the other, which is on the other side of this reflecting pool here, if you've ever been to Washington, DC. Uh, but they were correct. It was the, the Washington Monument. Uh, so this is how, this is just beginners, and this is how accurate it can be. Uh, next. You know, here's a picture, and the same thing in this session. The viewer got a race car. They thought, it can't be a race car. It's just, it just can't be that quick. Anymore. So they started walking around this stadium. But it is, it's a race car in a stadium. Uh, so these are totally blind sessions. The viewer is getting this from some other signal source that none of us were ever taught about. Uh, next slide. And here's a double blind session. Double blind means nobody knows what the monitor doesn't know. It's just Somehow, a target picture is put in the folder without anyone seeing it, and even then, the viewer. So this is not like mind reading. Uh, the viewer is somehow accessing the information in a different way. They're going to the location. So here's a laptop monitor. Here's the viewer's uh, drug. Next. Uh, here's just another example. Just look how carefully the viewer describes the look at the inside of that building, even the cross hatching patterns. Next. Now, here's how this ties in to Sasquatch and other anomalous topics. There was a book uh, called Remote Viewers by Jim Schnabel, one of the first books about remote viewing after it was declassified in 95. And we can talk more about this during questions or, or through the rest of the festival here. They had someone named Jerry Geller, who you've all heard of, who was able of demonstrating incredible psychic feats. Now, the way Yuri says he got started in this is he was chased by an orb in his apartment complex, I believe in Tel Aviv. And when the orb caught up with him, he went unconscious and fell down. When he came back to consciousness, he had all these powers. That's what he says happened. Now, it sounds like a great story. It turns out to actually be fact. A neighbor came forth recently who said they saw the orb chasing Yuri. And everything he said, the neighbor said, yep, that's exactly what happened. He chased him, he fell down. So even in RV, we have these orbs showing up. I've done sessions and been involved in sessions where people insisted orbs came into the room. Uh, so this is sort of one of my introductions to orbs is just through something seemingly as innocuous as RV, just reading about the history of it. But it actually, uh, as I mentioned in A Flash of Beauty very briefly, while Yuri was there, aports would show up. Objects that the researchers had been missing from their homes for six months. And he was only here for a month in the US because of security concerns, you know, and so forth. Uh, things that they had been missing fell out of the sky. In one case, a lapel pin showed up in someone's ice cream cone that they had bought on the beach. Aports, while Yuri was around, cryptids, strange looking birds showed up at the end of some of the researchers' beds one Saturday morning in the, in the house. Huge birds that couldn't possibly exist amongst ordinary animals. Small UFOs were seen flying around Lawrence Livermore Lab. I mean, the classic 1950s disc-shaped UFOs, you know? Uh, so this is all just associated with RV, which led me to believe that maybe RV is a just a fraction of a description of a larger reality, and you get what we call overlapping phenomenology. 
It's a big word meaning you can't separate these phenomena um, neatly. And even someone like me is guilty of this. I actually couldn't understand why these topics would have anything to do with each other remote viewing UFOs. But it was after talking to Jacques Vallée at one of the IRVA conferences, International Remote Viewing Association meetings in Vegas one time, and he said, this is what they're not telling you, Simeon, in all these UFO reports on these websites, is that the experiencers have precognitive experiences before their encounter with the UFO. Does this sound familiar? Strange things start happening even before they have the contact, and then after they have the contact, they have remote viewing abilities. So again, this shows us we're dealing with some sort of interdimensional process, in my view. And no matter how it comes at you, whether it comes through UFO contact, whatever those turn out to be, I guess we're all, we're all gonna find out over the next couple of years uh, if things progress as we're hearing these congressional hearings going on. Whether it's a UFO contact or a cryptid that you encounter, Bigfoot, or an orb, somehow all paths lead to Rome. This seems to be what the data show us is going on. Okay, next slide. So this got me interested in crop circles because some of the targets that you do in RV are called non-verifiable monopolist targets. It's just something that's sort of fun. You can't necessarily know that. If you view a UFO from a picture, you don't know at the end of the session and you went inside the craft, if that was actually inside the craft, as we do sometimes send people inside. But we view crop circles. I didn't even know what these were in 1996, believe me. That was fresh. I had been teaching at WSU as an assistant professor that I'd never heard of crop circles. I got curious, what are these things? This is my first viewing crop circle target ever. I started going over there in 97. Uh, next slide. Uh, and the first one I went into was something called the Coke Fractal Snowflake. It was actually the fractal I had studied in my dissertation, but here it was the size of a football field, 300 feet across. A kind of deterministic fractal. You can see why it's fractal. Get the large shape, and then you keep repeating the patterns, and it eventually forms that sort of pattern you see at the top. And whoever made this, whatever made this, was attempting to recreate this particular fractal shape, which to me was like, wow, that's kind of a synchronicity. I studied this for a couple of years, and it's in a field that, go figure. Uh, but here's what really got me about the crop circles. People were experiencing camera and battery failure, and all sorts of strange magnetic anomalies that didn't make any sense around something as inert as wheat. Uh, and they would have time loss and time slips in and around the crop circles. And this is something I eventually experienced with my own cameras after talking to people. Again, they're sort of stories, which you know is a good starting point for any investigation. And then you start experiencing it yourself. So you, people have told you about it. There you go in, your camera's blurry, it's not working, it has to be reset. I've seen this so many times. I would estimate it happens in about five or 10% of the crop circles that we visited. Next. Another beautiful circle, uh, also from that area uh, in 1997. Next. So this particular circle around Silbury Hill, that's the oldest and largest earth mound in Europe, about uh, 5,000 years old. And in this circle, someone's compass just started spinning around like crazy. Uh, like a motor, that's what Ron Russell told us. When Ron went into this particular formation, he went out to get more film, and all of a sudden he encountered people dressed in medieval garb, 
who were speaking in a kind of ancient English he could barely understand. He wasn't sure if they were doing some sort of ceremony or, or what was going on. But when he got back to the circle, he felt like he had been gone for 45 minutes to an hour. And the people back in the crop formation uh, said, you've only been gone for five minutes. So this is sort of an example of a time slip, which if you look at the evidence around Sasquatch and other types of cryptids, is not that uncommon either, that all of a sudden, a couple hours have gone by, uh, you've heard and read about these types of experiences, or maybe had, had it happen to yourself. Did Next slide. So even in the crop circles, we started to make, because we were curious, is this some sort of pattern coming out of the spiral, the helicity of the, the vortex sort of shape of the crop circle was causing some sort of space-time distortion or something really interesting. The one, even this one, we made it in Kansas on the way back from one of the RV conferences. We had permission to make a small one. None of the film came out right. And this was a professional Nikon camera that never did this before and never did it again. To this day, I still can't explain what these luminous anomalies are. But every single picture of that formation either came out blurry or has these weird lights in it. And this is, we made this, so we know this one was man-made. Uh, next. So I wrote about this one in, in Opening Minds and their copies at the back. But this was what's really interesting. As we got to know the human circle makers in the UK, and there were lots of teams out there making these, and I'm not saying this is the only source of them because I've spoken to witnesses and have seen them around UFOs and so forth. It's quite a complex subject. Even the human circle makers told me they had seen orbs. In this one case, by this Tosmid Cop formation, uh, the, the circle makers said they were chased out by orbs. Okay? So, it wasn't like the circle makers were hoaxers. They were like researchers experiencing the same sort of weird phenomena that everyone else experienced while they were out there, it, even before they started making their circle. That's it. In this case, by Woodboro Hill, we were on the hill right there when this picture was taken, and this German uh, researcher coming over to meet us, Koch and Kyborg, the two German researchers that made them as an attempt to communicate with whatever the higher universal forces are out there, photographed this sort of orb right there. Yeah, he could see it, and then he took a picture of it. Next. Uh, here's an example of a formation that destroyed three sets of batteries in about half an hour. And uh, it was just fascinating as these folks came in with their GPS, brand new batteries also just completely discharged. Again, very interesting that the formation has larger circles and then smaller, kind of almost like a fractal pattern there, oh, a bit. But, uh, so this was in 99, really showed me, wow, I mean, my, my uh, static meter stopped working and someone else's camcorder just jammed up, I mean, electronically, and then these folks came in and their bed. Other people who visited the formation told me the same thing happened. I went back there later in the year after the crops had been harvested and there was no effect. So it wasn't like just something in the area, it was something to do with that pattern in the wheat. Next. Yeah, uh, next. So talking to film crews there over the years, uh, they told me that they knew many other film crews that had their professional beta cams also stopped working. In one case, uh, BBC camera crew the camera locked up so badly they had to call London for instructions how to reboot it. It had to be rebooted from scratch. Uh, so this happens to professional film crews also in and around these types of circles. Next. 
Uh, one of the tourists who came with us on our crowd circle tours in 2006 uh, had the same experience, just the camera not taking the picture, nothing's there, and the viewfinder freezes up, just all these weird sort of glitches uh, in this particular pattern. Next. And you can fast forward over her talking about it, it's just a little sound, which she's just describing. Uh, this was an engineer from one of the universities in Oregon, electrical engineer, his, his watch, which had a compass in it, stopped pointing north. He said that north and south were no longer at 180 degrees, they were 90 degrees apart. Yep, yeah, this is the watch that malfunctioned. So this affects a whole variety of devices. Next, just tourist from Switzerland who was on our tour experienced this in her camera. Next. So what I thought may be going on is something what we call metamaterials, waveguides. Animals have this built into them, many different animals. They use it for camouflage, for being hydrophobic, to repel water, insects. The morphos butterfly, which appears blue, but there's no blue dye there. This is pure waveguide action. It's refracting light. The wings from the pattern, patterns smaller than the, the wavelength of light, are changing the frequencies into blue. Uh, so nature already knows how to do this. I thought maybe there's something with the weave, you know, and the, the weave, and it's sort of refracting. But light's pretty small, and the weave, weave's pretty big, so it didn't quite seem like it would be literally waved by quite the way this we see here, but it's something to do with that. Next. And then you have the idea of photonic crystals. Again, really small wavelengths, wood pile patterns that change the refraction uh, frequencies of light. Uh, and this is used in all type of technology and so forth. It seems that the crop circles acted like these types of crystals in some sort of way. Next. Now, there is a UFO connection to crop circles because uh, you had the Tully saucer nests where people saw disks in uh, areas, in marshy areas, and they would leave these patterns. And one of the guys who saw that, I thought it was, I think it was Doug Bauer of the Doug and Dave team that we've heard about from the UK, the two guys from the pub, they came back to England, and they're one of them, I think Doug was, they're both artists, and they thought, let's re recreate this UFO type feeling in the UK field. That's what motivated them to do it. So there is a UFO connection. That's, uh, this woman, uh, Louise Voves, who uh, passed on recently, uh, she told me that she was with her brother in Washington picking huckleberries clear over on the other side of the state. And uh, a, a UFO with the classic falling leaf pattern hovered over them. And as it left, it went right over the meadow and flattened the planes. So here's a witness that has seen uh, flying disks flat. It didn't create a crop circle. She said it was just a clear, flat as a pancake pattern all the way across the meadow. So there is definitely a UFO connection to crop circles, and there was also people that imitated that. So it's quite a complex phenomenon. The interesting thing for us is that you still get these weird electromagnetic effects from a, a, a vortex helical type pattern. Next. Here's some of the anomalies, light anomalies you see around crop circles. It's Colin Andrews, a crop circle uh, researcher who had his own camera, stopped working while he was with us. Uh, next. <laughs> Here's a crop circle that created this long-range magnetic pattern. Um, and uh, the, Colin measured this thinking there had to be magnets buried there, but there were no magnets buried in this field because we talked to the people who made it. 
it still created these large-scale magnetic patterns. I mean, 22, 23 Gauss is a lot of uh, magnetism. So um, just think about it. Something inert is weak. You make it into a spiral shape, and all of a sudden you're creating magnetism. Next. Another picture of an orb or another formation. Next. Next. Yeah, so here's a more naturally made one that looks like this was created by a whirlwind or you know, miniature tornado. So the different, there are different causes of these formations. You can see that the, the wheat splayed outwards. Next. So my idea back then is the only thing that I could really think of is that these crop circles or crop patterns, because of the helical spiral patterns, were literally organizing some sort of energy. At the time, I thought it could be dark energy, and I did research on this. If you look around, you do, you listen online and things, you'll be told that there's just a little bit of dark energy around it, dark matter. It turns out there's a lot more. Uh, it's, on, it's not just, dark energy and dark matter are not just something way far out there in the cosmos, right? Dark matter being a force that pulls galaxies together, dark energy, whatever these are, pushes them apart. They're actually here on Earth, they're around us. So even about 10 years ago, I was imagining it's either dark energy, maybe dark matter, too. But there's something about the shape of that that's organizing another energy field that is leading to these strange electromagnetic effects. Next. Now, here's another interesting aspect of this. People that have experienced these crop circle anomalies and strange lights and orbs get the same sort of experiences that Jacques Vallée had told me happens to UFO witnesses, and as we know, some Bigfoot witnesses too, is they start experiencing things in their life afterwards that they never experienced before. Strange things happening around the house, just large uh, changes in things that they see around them, and what we would generally call paranormal phenomena. And uh, Andrew Collins, an author, wrote about this in the New Circle Makers. It's just an example that Okay, so I'm looking at it scientifically, electromagnetic effects, you know, measuring it, but for a person experiencing it, their life is never the same after experiencing some of these luminosities. In this case, he wrote about a family coming home it's somewhere in the London area, and they encounter these luminosities on the road, and, and they change their lives completely. They totally change jobs. They, they started getting interested in much more universal topics, and they change for the better. So. Again, overlapping phenomenology. Next. Now, we've also heard about this from Skinwalker Ranch, right? Uh, this newer book, Skinwalker's to Pentagon, talks about the hitchhiker effect. The idea that somehow these energies, entities, uh, whatever you think they are, are following you home. Now, I've read enough cases of this happening in Bigfoot witnesses, which is really inexplicable if they're completely flesh and blood, which is that people see the Bigfoot experience it somewhere far away from home. They drive home at highway speeds, and it's at home that night. Right? You've all heard about cases like this. Either in cases where it's, they're on the other side of the country, and they say they claim they see the same creature out the window which uh, is very hard to explain from a purely physical, flesh and blood point of view. Well, Lukatsky called it the hitchhiker effect because if you've read these books or you're familiar with Skinwalker Ranch, the researchers, according to Lukatsky, who was, you know, a missile analyst at DIA, uh, that they saw dogmen back in their cozy 
Maryland suburban homes, backyards. Not only did the researchers who had been at Skinwalker Ranch see what they just called werewolves, we guess those of us in this community called dogmen, their kids saw it, and they hadn't talked about this classified, you know, OSAP being the people responsible for uh, sending a group of analysts out to work with Bigelow before Brandon Fugel bought it. Uh, the they didn't talk about this, but the kids saw it, and then the kids' friends also saw the werewolves dug in around their property. So I'll leave it to you to imagine what's going on there. My personal view, it's not that anything is following you home. It's, it's you, you're seeing a bigger portion of reality after your experience at Skinwalker Ranch, for whatever reason that is, in these portal hotspots. And you're, you're seeing more, your sense has expanded. We've heard some of the speakers here uh, this weekend say that you know, our perception is very limited. And I, that I can tell you that's true from RV, we're only perceiving a tiny fraction. What you're looking around the room right now, you think you're seeing what's there. Brain physiology tells us we're seeing like a millionth of what's in this room, just with our physical senses. So it's possible that having experiences with the types of phenomena in portal areas expands your perception. And now you're seeing what's always been in your backyard <laughs> in Maryland. You just never saw it before. That's my point of view. You could have another point of view on it to me. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to talk to you about that. But anyway, next. So this is also what we get around UFOs. Um, this report from the 60s from Kehoe and Laura is just great on all these strange effects of UFOs. Again, Val, Jacques Vallée was very emphatic that a lot of these official organizations want to sanitize the experiences so it just seems like a metal disc with little guys in it from another planet. And he told me it's the last thing that's just, it's much more complex than that. And in Strange Impression UFOs, when you get orbs, battery camera failure, car stalling, and so forth. Next. Now, this is a really good example of this. I just did an interview with Stan two days ago. I'll have it on my YouTube channel as soon as I'm back in Wi-Fi range when I can upload it. Um, it's on my podcast channel now. But Stan is the one, and he just re-emphasized this a couple days ago. Stan Gordon being the researcher from Pennsylvania. He said, He's been in this since 1959. It's, I, he's been studying UFOs and Bigfoot longer than I've been alive. Uh, 1959 is a long time ago. And he told me continuously since 1959, he didn't hear about the first Bigfoot connection to UFOs until around 65. And he said it's never stopped. And he said where you get Bigfoot, you get other cryptids. You get the Black Panthers. You get Dogmen and even Thunderbirds. And he said, even until a couple of weeks ago, he's taking calls. He said his phone has never stopped ringing from 1959. He was working with this Westinghouse group that Stanton Friedman was a part of, Westinghouse in Pittsburgh. It was just a group of engineers interested in UFOs who worked for Westinghouse. And he got, as a kid, you know, a 19-year-old, he got, he got to be the phone guy that got, you know, received the calls in the office. He said the phone's never stopped ringing from 1959. He said, you, there's so much of this going on, but we don't hear about it from the media and so forth. It's on his website, all these cases. But what do you get in this case? You get orbs. You get time loss. Um, strange electro, he's an electrical engineer, strange electromagnetic effects. The same things that we saw around crop circles. 
and UFO sightings. He said you cannot separate Bigfoot from UFOs. He's convinced of this. He goes, where you have UFOs, you often get Bigfoot and other types of cryptids. Um, and they're not separate topics. And where you get the Bigfoot, you often get UFOs. Next slide. And there are just so many examples in the silent invasion. If you haven't read it, you definitely need to check it out. Of just um, they have Bigfoot contact creatures, and then objects show up. Uh, and as people said to me, Simeon, how could you have something advanced like we think of ETs, and then sort of more primitive like an ancient primate? Why would they be together? I said because it's not an ancient primate, and there's some connection of frequency there between these phenomena. They're at the same frequency. Like you tune into that channel, you're going to get all these different types of phenomena. Uh, maybe they even are more intrinsically connected than we understand. Uh, next. Yeah, so this is just one illustration from his book. And he talked about this case just a couple days ago, again, where the person saw a white haired Bigfoot. And this is Pennsylvania. Uh, this is southwestern Pennsylvania. There's a big hot spot there called Chestnut Ridge, which goes all the way down to uh, Virginia. And this is just so many cases where they had the creatures or humans, whatever you think they actually are, and the UFO showing up at the same time. Next. Uh, Terry Lovelace has written about this too. He had his own experience while serving in the Air Force in a state park in Arkansas, but he took witness reports in his second book, and again, it's full of this overlapping phenomenology where you have UFO sightings and you have orbs and so forth. Next. So how does this connect to all these sorts of other science topics? I think there's some real direct connections here and I just want to talk about this in the remaining time we have. Dark matter, even though we don't know mostly what it is, and I mentioned it before, it turns out that the Soviets and the Russian scientists have been studying this for a long time and they uh, they're not the only ones, but they came to the conclusion it's a type of relic neutrino from the cosmic background radiation. It's about 1% of dark matter, but it's still more than all the more matter we can see in the universe. 1% of dark matter plot. Uh, dark matter being uh, the vast majority of matter. What we see around us and all the stars and the plasmas and so forth out there is, is just about a half a percent of all the type of matter and energy that's out there. Most of it's invisible. And people like Alexander Parkhamov studied this with this homemade relic neutrino detector where he put radioactive substances at the tip and saw the direction you point the telescope affected the rate of radioactive decay. Not supposed to happen according to standard physics models. It was affected by the time of year and by the motions of planets and so forth. Radioactive decay. And he found this happened in biological reactions and so forth. In other words, the Earth is receiving this energy, but not constant. There's some variation in it. And this type of energy, these relic neutrinos, relic because they're from the, you know, going back way back to the Big Bang. They're not like the solar neutrinos that come from the sun that you may have heard about that are really tiny and really fast and don't interact with anything. These neutrinos, their wavelength is enough to interact with cells with chemical reactions. And they encourage reactions to happen. They're called ozonic, they encourage particles to come together. So uh, at the scale that we live, we're affected by cosmological factors, and people like Parkhamo showed that next. 
Yeah, and so there's just a lot of research in relic neutrinos and what they do and, and how they interact. And as the space telescopes get better, perhaps you can these neutrinos don't interact with us directly uh, electromagnetically, they kind of create gravitational pressure. They flux and they flow around objects. They're attracted to planets, they're attracted to galaxies and so forth. Next. So this is really what dark matter looks like throughout the universe. When you look out there, you just see individual stars. But if you could see the dark material, you would see webs of connection between the different galaxies and cosmological structures out there. So this is sort of a map of what dark matter, what our universe really looks like. That things are more connected than they appear to our eyes. Thanks. Uh, Interestingly enough, the research done at Pear Labs in micro-PK, this is your ability to affect physical objects with your mental intention. The micro-PK they use to measure effects of people on machines generating random numbers. They found that bonded pairs could influence the machine, the couples, people, could influence it more than a single person, which again suggests, in my view, that this sort of subatomic kind of very small particles of relic neutrinos that we're emitting them and when we're in harmony together in a kind of resonance it's a stronger effect and i can tell you that having seen demonstrations of pk in japan from a guy that could levitate light objects with his hands he was able to send a, a cigarette across the room into my shirt pocket from about 15 feet away which you could try all day and you'd never do it if you're throwing that cigarette did it in one shot it turned like right angle and went down with force into my shirt pocket, and he's over there. Uh, this seems that we emit a type of energy. We call it cold neutrinos when we're emitting it from our hands or our body. So we emit energies that we can't see, and if you can do this in a coherent way, you can physically affect things at a distance. And it seems to affect uh, micro PK experiments too. Next. So this is just the Paralabs result over many cases, trying to make a random number generator go towards one or zero. Next. So this is really where it gets interesting. This is not just theoretical science. A lot of people, including Boyd Bushman from Lockheed Martin, suggested that this kind of interaction we have with neutrinos, relic neutrinos, creates a connection to dark matter and that there's a whole other universe out there that we can't see. And I'm suggesting that it's actually around us right here. I mean, in the room around us, and it's affecting all of these phenomena that we think of as being paranormal. In other words, that there are types of life on Earth that already know instinctively how to interact with these energies, how to generate coherency with them, and how to create all sorts of very interesting electromagnetic effects, anti-gravitational effects, purely from generating type of resonant coherency. Next. Okay, next slide. So it turns out that a lot of people have been studying this, especially in the United States, not just Soviet Union and Russia. Going back to the 50s, there was Winston Bostick who studied this at New Jersey Institute of Technology. He called them plasmoids, and the idea, what he concluded was that this could be what holds galaxies together, and these were in a test tube. So basically, as above, so below. It's the same forces, things that 
hold galaxies together gravitationally. You could reproduce just with electromagnetic energies that have the same shape as galaxies and so forth. So Bostic was working for the Department of Energy finding peaceful uses of fusion energy after World War II. And he concluded that these plasmas had this self-organized form, which he called plasmoids. Next. And this was the New York Times article about it, which they called test tubes in a galaxy. These are kind of very similar to orbs, ball lightning, and so forth. In fact, it's literally the same sort of force holding together. So you can create this in the lab, things that you also see out there in nature. Next. Yeah, these beautiful sort of galaxy-like patterns. Next. And then Ken Shoulders was someone that worked at SRI even before the remote viewing program. And what he told us, and he called these objects uh, exotic vacuum objects, these plasmoids. This was his term for it. He was studying the work of John Hutchinson in Canada who had created these bent metal samples at room temperature. The fractured metal samples that you've heard about. Purely through electromagnetic energy at room temperature, multi-metal with no increase in temperature. And he concluded that we're all generating these little exotic vacuum objects. Every time we walk across the room, you touch a doorknob, you get a shock, you see those little static charges on your blanket at night when you're filling up the covers. That's all ball light. That's what Shoulders concluded. We're just working off of the research of Bostic and others. And he said the same thing that Boyd Bushman said even though he passed away before Bushman. He said that there's this dark matter universe that interacts through ball lightning. Uh, and it can exist at a microscopic scale, or a large scale. Like we see them, and we saw that in Flash of Beauty, some of those ball lightning objects. It can be at a tiny scale, it can be a larger scale. And that's, here's some of the things he was able to produce, the beautiful spiral patterns in the lab. Next. Fractal patterns, so these ball lightnings, when they're moving around, form these sort of fractal-like patterns. Next. They form these bead chains. Uh, now, here's the interesting thing. Ball lightning has an invisible form. It's called black ball lightning. Uh, some people have referred to it as stealth mode plasmas. And most of this ball lightning is probably invisible most of the time, okay? So we're surrounded by invisible energetic objects. You won't see them because they're not refracting light. Here in a lab under controlled circumstances, you can see them show up. Next. And he also, just like Bushman, suggested uh, that there is another dark universe around us. And, that's, and we had this discussion a little bit earlier. Someone asked me this question. It's not dark like it bad or negative or evil. We're talking about literally an invisible universe that's right next to us all the time. And this is what these researchers are coming up from the lab, whether it's uh, Shoulders or Bushman or so many of these other Russian researchers. They said when objects were in this dark state, they could literally absorb matter and it would just transmute it into other elements. It would literally be like alchemy. Literally, alchemy turns out to be real from the point of view of ball lightning and micro ball lightning. And this is what Shoulders, now Shoulders, isn't just any old research. He invented microelectronic masking that's in all of our electronics for the NSA in the 60s. And this is what his conclusion, from the, working with microelectronics to conclusions about dark matter. Think about it. Next. And this is what's really a shocker. What he came up with is that these types of condensed matter, micro ball lightning, ball lightning, 
uh, changes the permittivity of space-time, literally changes the, electro, uh, the electrical constants of space, and puts these objects in another reality that's right next to us. He said they're going to be decoupled from our reality, but they're going to be extremely energetic, but they wouldn't be in this reality, even in the same room, because their permittivity, which is one of the fundamental constants of the universe, permittivity and permeability, mean the magnetic constant, that when you get this type of black EV, this condensed matter, it changes the permittivity. It's just fascinating. Next. So it changes, it decouples from our universe, and it would appear if it was in our space right here as something that looked paranormal. That's what paranormal turns out to be, is objects with shifted permeability. Now it turns out Einstein suggested this in 1907 and 1911, but he was already so well known for his special theory of relativity and then he got a Nobel Prize in 21 for general relativity. He never went off on the idea of variable speed of light. But this is what we're talking about, is objects that have a different speed of light. How, how many minutes a second? Great. Next. This is John Hutchinson next. Tesla was working on this. And then when Tesla worked on this, it was these huge discharge, pulse discharge devices and coils. It's not done like that anymore. You can reproduce this with small laboratory equipment. But Tesla talked about these sort of things. sounds, vibration, frequency. Um, next. The metal samples next. Yes, things can be embedded in each other at room temperature just from using Tesla technology reproduced. Next, melted metal at room temperature, no heat involved. Almost as stranger than Bigfoot. Next, small black holes in some of these objects, such a level of what Takayaki Matsumoto, who I'm sorry to say just passed away about two weeks ago at the age of 81, but he left us a lot of great research that the Martin Fleischmann Memorial Project was able to go over to Japan digitize all of this. You saw a little. You saw a little bit in the flash view last night of the micropole lightning in some of his experiments underwater. He concluded this literally causes an electronuclear collapse of matter forming small black holes and regeneration. And this is why in cold fusion uh, experiments you end up with new elements that were not there in the, in the reactor vessel. Before you started, you're done and you've got new elements there that weren't there before. Next. He said it's probably just like black holes out there, totally different mechanism, but the same sort of effect as, you know, fractal, as above, so below. Next. Yeah, and so these things, what we call cold fusion, is just a simulation of what the universe has already been doing. In other words, it's totally natural. Next. Same, same sort of ideas. Stronger than black holes, basically, at a micro scale. Next. You get. Uh, carbon spraying out of pure lead. There it is from a cold fusion experiment. Should be, that's alchemy right there. You measure before with the electron scanning microscope? No. Uh, no carbon, pure lead, all of a sudden uh, carbon spraying out. Next. Different elements on the periodic table being created. Right there. All these experiments reproduce all the same sort of uh, effects. 
So it's like a type of alchemy. Maybe that's how these cryptids in Bigfoot are able to create things, aports. I'm not sure, it's a little bit of a stretch, but again, we already know that in the lab you can reproduce new elements. Maybe there's life forms out there that can do this with their mental intention. Next. Next, yeah, so you know, patterns like this, look, they look similar to crop circles at the microscopic scale. Next. Now here's where it gets interesting. These objects are fractal objects. Ball lightning is a fractal-based object. So what the Soviets called it were electromagnetic phantoms. How about that? Fractal phantoms in toroidal form. This is sort of a model of ball lightning. Smaller and small scale keeps repeating the large scale. Next. Next slide, yeah. So this is really what ball lightning turns out to be, is this, uh, this sort of condensed charge clusters which Shoulders is talking about, Matsumoto, and so forth. Next. Next. Uh, Freiberger came up with similar ideas at Stanford, ball lightning, strong electromagnetic forces, he called them photons, and so forth. Next. This is what the structure looks like. Next. Even uh, John Archibald Wheeler, a very important figure in American physics, came up with the same sort of models even in the 1950s. And what's going through is anti-gravity fields right through the center from ball lightning. Next. This is discovered in something called the Bose-Einstein condensate in 95. Bose and Einstein suggested this in 25 and in, in you know, seven. 50 years later, it's discovered in, in uh, seven years later, in Boulder and NIST. Bose-Einstein condensate is this, what we're talking about here. They do it initially at very cold temperatures, but ball lightning and other forces can do it at room temperature. Same sort of thing. All the atoms condense into one big atom. The, the wave function just becomes one big wave function. And it achieves a type of quantum coherency. Next. Yep, there it is, Bose-Einstein condensate. Next. Lockheed Martin has already filed patents and received patents in this whole area. They call it coherent matter wave beams. So if anyone tells you that this is sort of quantum woo-woo, uh, defense contractors are patenting it, okay? Doesn't sound like woo-woo to me. And they just talk about creating coherency without going to absolute zero, just through resonance, sound, whatever you want to use to create coherent matter. Next. Okay, next. And these objects sometimes are seen in the atmosphere, so this is from a declassified CIA report. Next. John Ramirez has talked about these plasmas. The CIA studied them. They called them dark plasma, stealth mode. Next. Next. Yeah, okay. So this is the final thing we'll show tonight. This is what the Russian researchers concluded is that if you have these fractal shapes, toroids within toroids, right, repeating patterns, this is physically what it would look like. This particular physicist, verbalist, came across this in a classified uh, uh, Soviet experiment, is that when you turned off the experiment, the orb would stay above the table. You could take all the machinery away and it would stay there for two days, a glowing orb above the table a persistent lab-produced ball lightning. Next. And what they concluded is it's because of the fractal shape of the electromagnetic fields. 
non-ordinary electromagnetic fields closed pointing vectors that go all the way down to the zero point field. This is from their paper next. And that the only shape uh, that would produce this is what? The fractal Coke snowflake. That the fractal Coke snowflake is the only shape, known shape in our universe that can condense electromagnetic energy to produce non-Maxwellian electromagnetic fields. In other words, the electromagnetics that you and I were taught is incomplete. There's a fractal form too that allows it to create orbs and all sorts of interesting electromagnetic effects. And I would suggest that this is what we're seeing out there in the field in some of these types of cryptid Bigfoot uh, encounters is fractal electromagnetics, which is of course how nature would do it since nature is built around fractals. And all of this research basically just proves that. It proves that there's an alternative type of electromagnetism that's based on a fractal shape and that it can produce huge amounts of energy as the Lockheed, we didn't have time to go into it, but as the Lockheed Martin patent claimed, you could create all sorts of very interesting action at a distance. Of course, they're interested in weaponizing it. But my point is that um, it seems that the life forms, that, the invisible life forms, at the very least, around us that we call cryptids and Bigfoot in many cases, uh, already know how to do all this. It's our ego that makes us think, oh, we invented all this, and it's classified research, and we hear about this all the time, think, oh, you know, it's black budget programs. I think these cryptids already know how to do all this, because that's how nature works. And if these guys are saying the same thing, that there's just other types of electromagnetics out there, and it's just based on fractals, and nature is based on fractals, then it's pretty clear that we're not the top of the food chain. <laughs> and that some other types of humans, perhaps, that we split off from quite a while ago, developed, evolving this way. We went the technological route with machines and they went more in this resonant, coherent uh, direction, just using sound and frequency and however they do it to generate all these sorts of effects that we see coming from ball lightning and fractal shapes, which is anti-gravity, uh, intense types of energy, orbs, and so forth. So that's my connection to it. And uh, thanks for listening. I'm happy to answer any We're going to keep Simeon around tonight for the Clash of Beauty yes. second showing. So if you have questions for Simeon later,